Hey folks, and welcome back to Return to the Telepodcast. <laughs> Kevin Hello. is being a goon. I have a hand that is a, a back scratcher. Uh, and also your arm is hidden away in your t-shirt. No, I lost it in the war. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, how you doing? Uh, you know, I'm alright. I got up, like, literally an hour ago, and it's 3 p.m., so... <laughs> One of those days. Yeah, I mean, that's almost every single day of mine, but yes. <laughs> yeah, fair. Cool, so, uh... This week, we're looking at Clive Barker's 1987 classic Hellraiser, and its 1988 sequel, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Yes. And, uh, I think, actually, as of yesterday, at the time of recording... Uh, the new reboot, or I'm not sure what the new film is, mm-hmm. actually, but there is a new Hellraiser out, and we'll probably do yes. some kind of like a bonus episode about that. It is a Hulu original film. Yeah, and that does not bode well to me. I've never heard those phrases uttered before. Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical, but, you know, I, I think uh, Hellraiser's interesting because, you know, it has this, like, famously, like, long heritage of right. terrible sequels. And there's a lot of them. Yeah, there's, like, 11 films Something now, like that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't think any of them are particularly well thought of after no. the first one. No, not really, no. Well, the second one wasn't god-awful. It was just weird. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, let's let's start there. Uh, what's, what's your history with Hellraiser? Uh, I don't have one. Uh, I never watched Hellraiser until, like, yesterday um besides that like i just knew of like the aesthetic pinhead is obviously a very famous character uh that's really all i knew and that it was like very psychosexual snm sort of film uh which i was not wrong it it very much is that yeah yeah it really is just like bdsm horror pretty much yeah yeah yeah, I uh, I've seen the original film uh, a few times now, um, and I, I like Hellraiser. I actually think I liked it more this time than I ever have before. Yeah, um, and I think part of that was I, I think in the past I've actually watched it alone, and it's way more fun with friends. I mean, if you watch it alone, you notice a lot of the flaws, which are a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I think very imperfect as a film, and I, I think it got like a pretty mixed reception when yeah, it came out. That's what I saw too. I saw one review that was like, "This is the best horror film of all time," and I was like, "I don't know about that. I don't know about that." Yeah, I think that's I think that's a uh, that's a lot of praise. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it is it is a lot of fun, right? It's um, fine. I liked it. I thought it was very different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So I've I've seen it uh, a few times at this point, uh, and I've started the sequel a couple of times, and this is the first time I've ever finished it. Yeah. The uh, yeah, the first thirty minutes or so of Hellraiser two are just agonizingly slow. Yeah, it's literally just recaps. It's it's literally just scenes from the first movie, just in the second movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's... It, honestly, I actually liked it much more than I expected mm-hmm. this time, um, but it really is, it's like the process of getting past the first, yeah, again, like the first like 30 minutes is grueling. Pretty much, yeah. It's like, have you watched Star Trek before? 
I've seen uh, bits and pieces of the show okay. and like some of the movies. Okay, I should have specified Next Generation. Oh, I've not watched Next Generation. Yeah, there's just a famously like really really bad episode that everyone hates. That's literally just a clip show, and I was kind of just gonna describe it as that. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, I will we'll get into this soon enough, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, it's it it is like it feels like a clip show. Yeah. And it's particularly weird because, you know, when we're doing movies for this podcast, we watch them back to back. Yeah. Um, so you end up, you know, you finish Hellraiser and then you start Hellraiser 2 and you're just like, oh, we literally just watched this happen. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just also not a fan of clip shows in general, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a very artificial way, I think, to sort of be like, remember what happened? Hey. And it doesn't necessarily tell us anything more beyond that. So if you right. do remember what happened, it's like, well, then why am I why am I here, kind yeah. of? And Hellraiser 2 only came out like a couple of years after the first one, I think, right? One year, yeah. It was a yeah. very quick turnaround. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think we needed the, the Hellraiser clip show. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little too early for little, that, I think. A little bit. Cool. Uh, well, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, Kevin, do you want to summarize the original Hellraiser? I shall. I shall indeed. So the film begins with uh, Frank Cotton, who is an extreme hedonist, going to Morocco to buy a puzzle box that is set to contain otherworldly pleasures. Uh, he takes the puzzle box uh, back to his home uh, and once he opens the box, he's torn apart by chains before a demonic being, which we later figure out are called Cenobites, uh, resets the puzzle. Years later, Frank's brother, Larry, moves into Frank's former home with his second wife, Julia. Julia and Frank had a passionate affair that Larry is unaware of. Uh, after Larry accidentally spills some blood in the attic that Frank died in, Frank is resurrected in an incomplete form. He's literally initially, like... Just a nervous system. Just, yeah, he's like a goopy set of bones yeah. and like a little bit of kind of viscera. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So after uh, finding Frank, Julia agrees to sacrifice uh, men she picks up at bars to complete Frank's resurrection. She was real horny for him. Real horny for him. Uh, later, Larry's daughter, Christy, sees Julia bringing a man over to the house uh, and she follows Julia into the attic. Uh, there she finds Frank, uh, she's chased by Frank, obviously, uh, and escapes with the puzzle box uh, before collapsing. Christy then wakes up in a hospital where she solves the box, pretty much out of boredom, and she summons the Cenobites, uh, who try to force Christy into their sadomasochistic realm. Christy, however, manages to escape by promising to recapture her uncle Frank for the Cenobites. Back home, Frank has killed Larry and has taken his face, uh, which initially tricks Christy into believing that he's her father. Uh, Julia shows her the supposed corpse of Frank in the attic to further convince her of that, that Frank has been killed. Uh, the Cenobites return and they see through this facade uh, and ask for the person who committed the, this murder. Uh, after that, Christy escapes uh, and discovers that Frank has killed and taken Larry's identity. Uh, Frank tries to kill Christy, but accidentally stabs Julia, who he then drains. Frank chases Christy to the attic, where he's torn apart by the Cenobites. Uh, Christy then banishes the Cenobites back to their realm by closing the puzzle box. After that, Christy throws the box into a burning pyre, where it's picked up by a vagrant who transforms into a skeletonized winged being 
and returns the box to the same merchant that sold it to Frank. So why do we think Hellraiser is a classic? I mean, again, Pinhead is like one of the most kind right. of like iconic monsters in horror. I think it's a classic because it's kinky as shit, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's weirdly like intensely erotic for like a horror film. Uh, I don't like really know what else to say about that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about parallels to like the Cronenberg version of The Fly. Yeah, uh, that they're they're both movies that are obsessed with the flesh, and so that sometimes yeah. comes out in like really grotesque kind of body nastiness. Sometimes yeah. that comes out in like really hardcore boning. Yeah, um, and it's, yeah, it just all around is a super like fleshy movie. It is. It's kind of it's on the verge of body horror in some like scenes, but it's like doesn't really completely go there. It definitely, like, connects, like, the horrors of, like, I don't know, or anxieties of, like, sex and, I guess, being torn apart or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, for me, and I, I don't know how much this definition would hold up with, like, actual horror theory. Right. Uh, but but for me, I think of body horror as being kind of the, the monster is within, you know, right. or it's, like, something that's inside of you that then is changing what you are or somehow disfiguring the body. Mm. And this is very much, you know, I mean, I guess you could say that, like, the, the lust of these characters mm. is sort of uh, tearing them apart from within or, like, this, this need for, like, extreme hedonism or pleasure. Right. Uh, but the actual acts of violence, the actual things that happen to the body are very much external. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so as well. I mean, Julia is pretty much a, a character that never really has any sort of moral compass and just compl- continues to deteriorate towards the end of the film. Yeah, there is, there's an interesting, you know, the first time she brings back a man to, yeah. be, uh, to be consumed by Frank there's there's an interesting hesitation from mm-hmm. her and and I think that's actually a really well sketched scene that it just feels so long yeah and and I think that we you know we we see her I guess on the precipice of of doing this horrible thing and then once she's done it once she doesn't really hesitate again I guess there is a connection between like I don't know infidelity and like how horror how that kind of just destroys her own marriage uh, and how she literally like causes her husband to get killed uh, and transform into her, like, other man, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's very much a movie about kind of, like, the id run wild. Right. And that's sort of uh, the, the darker side of desire, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, both in just the amount of, like, boning that takes place in the movie. Yeah, there's a lot. And, yeah, we were joking about, like, half the direction is like, okay, so look... Vaguely sinister and also really turned on. <laughs> this is the only movie that showed peen for like half a second also. Yeah, we did get a little bit of peen. We did. I'm, I'm very glad we did. It's a quality. We also got a lot of shoulder pads. A whole lot of shoulder pad. So much shoulder pad. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a deeply, like, 80s movie, right? Yeah. Like, the, the Cenobites are, yeah, dressed in, like, black bondage leather. Mm. And, like, they all have, like, uh sort of an 80s cool in, in extreme quotation marks. It's, it's sort of like on the verge of like a 90s sort of like industrial goth. I feel like that aesthetic very much took from the Cenobites. 
Yeah, yeah, like it, it predates Nine Inch Nails maybe, right. but like it very much opens that aesthetic yeah. in a lot of ways. I was kind of expecting when they showed up for like closer to start playing or something. Yeah, well, and, and actually, I mean, I think Closer is, like, a really good, uh, like, odd, like, kind of musical parallel, right. you know? Like, it has the, like, I want to fuck you like an animal, right. you bring me closer to God, and right. it's very kind of self-deprecating, uh, yeah. sort of. Um, it's, like, self-fulfilling, kind of. It's, like, you're only doing this because it brings you your own pleasure at the, like, expense of someone else. Yeah, yeah, or it's sort of the your internality being extremely dark and mm-hmm. so looking for pleasure to kind of like fill that hole maybe right there there are a lot of holes filled yeah fill that <laughs> hole in a very literal <laughs> sense yeah when I, I think that kind of ties to the imagery of of hellraiser is mm-hmm. really distinct it you is know? yeah um and so that that's both, you know, the the Cenobites themselves are pretty imaginative. You know, we have, uh, I think it's the Chatterer, is, is what he's called. The guy, yeah, he has his, like, gums and, or it's like his lips are totally removed and his teeth yeah. are just kind of like... He communicates only through chatter. Yeah, yeah, we have another Cenobite who has this weird kind of gash opening in her throat that yeah. does look very vaginal. It's a thrussy. Yeah. <laughs> we called it a thrussy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and and then there's moments, there's a scene where there's a, a body under a sheet that is gradually bleeding through and, like, feathers are sort of snowing mm-hmm. down from, from the ceiling. It's a very dreamlike, surreal moment. Well, like, when the, I don't remember exactly when it was, I think it's when the Cenobites were uh, kind of explaining their whole jazz to Christy, where, like, the camera's just, like, doing these, like, weird, extreme, I don't want to say Dutch angles, but, like... Is just kind of like going around each individual Cenobite in a very like oddly experimental sort of camera work sort of way. Yeah, when I, I believe this was the first time that Clive Barker had actually directed a film. Right. And it it, it, it feels in some ways like a like very much like a first film. It does. It's it's simultaneously like very very imaginative mm-hmm. and very ambitious. It is really ambitious, yeah. It, I think it doesn't quite have the budget for some of the moments of ambition. Mm-hmm. Like the the like skeleton thing that flies off at the end just looks. It literally awful. looks like it's from Spirit Halloween. Yeah, it's really bad, and and there's <laughs> there's a blend of I think special effects that like look pretty good, or like I think the Cenobites themselves are like they, well designed and well crafted, and then right. some of the effects are like oh buddy. Oh, this should not have made no. it into the final cut. No. The makeup was really, really good. Uh, the effects were not. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair kind of uh, comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one other thing I, I think that's really cool about Hellraiser to me mm-hmm. is sort of, I think that there's there's two things, right? So there's the woman who is making these sacrifices to bring her dead lover back from hell. Right. Uh, so there's that, that side of the plot. And then there's the other side of the kind of extra dimensional beings mm-hmm. that are, you know, all about pleasure and pain and magnitudes beyond our kind of comprehension. Yep. And I think either of those probably could have held a film by itself, but I think the combination is really cool. So we have, you know, Frank the Hedonist um, that, that, that Julia has an affair with, and then we have Larry, who's this really pretty bland guy yeah. he's like one of the least sexual characters in in the film you know almost everyone else is just absurdly horny all the time yep. and so we see them kind of paralleled and there's a moment even where after larry 
dies, or after after he's killed, uh, I think Frank maybe says, you know, he was dead before we ever touched him. And we yeah. get the sense that because his life has been devoid of, you know, these extremes of pleasure and pain, like, was he really living up to that point? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you have these two sort of parallel plots that interlock really smoothly. And then thematically, it's all about that kind of, uh, I guess, you know, the push and pull between like the id and I guess maybe the ego or the superego or that that sort of need for like extreme experience and also the kind of effects that that can have. Right. And I don't feel like the film really at the end goes towards like either direction too hard. Uh, It doesn't like say that. It doesn't necessarily say that, like, sexual deviancy uh, will lead to, like, utter torment necessarily. But it also doesn't say that, like, the best thing for people is, like, chastity. It kind of falls somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm not really sure what point the, the, the film is trying to make right. around sexuality. But I, I think you're right that it's, it's not necessarily judgmental yeah i think it's more like you can't you can't kill people to fuck your (laughs) ex-lover that's really the only point it's making (laughs) and you know a fair point yeah i think it's you know important to remember that murder murder is not necessary for getting laid this is true this is very true it helps though uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, any anything else that you feel like is really central to to making Hellraiser work, or or to I guess it's kind of classic reputation. Um. Yeah, I guess just the fact that it was like a a very sexual, a uh, very uh, different kind of horror film that came out in the uh, towards the end of the eighties, and very like industrial. Almost like by industrial, I mean like the aesthetic of industrial. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it kind of foreshadows what's going to happen towards like the 90s in terms of uh, horror and even just like movies in general. Yeah. No, I, I think there's something to be said for it. its timing mm-hmm. is, is really good that it sort of puts maybe like puts a cap on 80s horror to some level and yeah. moves us more towards like the aesthetic that we're going to see more uh, moving into the 90s. Yeah. It's a nice transition from, like, I don't know, Friday the 13th to the later Alien films. Yeah, yeah. And it, it again, I think there's that, that connection of, like, the fleshiness mm-hmm. and the body that I think is in some way similar between this and Alien, right? Like, the, the vaginal imagery in particular, right? right? Yeah. No, this ain't Heckraiser. This is, this this is, is Hellraiser. This is fucking Hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's very, I mean, I, I think it, it at times just feels like really like, yeah, we're edgy now. Uh, especially the, the design of the Cenobites. There's right. the one butterball that's just like, he's just like a doughy guy with yeah. like cool guy, like 80s sunglasses. Or which, uh, look, maybe it's more like cool guy I, 90s sunglasses in like a couple right. years. I mean, like the Cenobites literally just look like, besides Chatterbox, whatever his fucking name is, they literally just look like goth kids. Like, goth kids with a lot of piercings, but, like, they're just literally goth kids. <laughs> really extreme goth kids, yeah. Like, people you would not see out of place at a goth establishment, a goth nightclub or something like that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
Well then, uh, I will summarize Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. And I'm, I'm gonna do my best. Yes. This one kind of goes all over the fucking place. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I'm yeah. gonna do my best to keep it quick. Hellraiser the Squeakquel. The Squeakquel? <laughs> <laughs> Which one of the Cenobites is Alvin, do you think? Pinhead. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think it has to be Pinhead. Yeah. So the film opens with two flashback sequences. And so we see a man opening the puzzle box and being turned into a Cenobite, uh, specifically Pinhead. And then the other flashback recaps the events of the kind of end of the first film. We cut to Kirsty in a psychiatric hospital, and she's trying to explain to Dr. Chenard and his assistant, Kyle McRae, basically what happened. And then she also is telling a cop to destroy the mattress where her stepmother, Julia, died. I just realized I was calling Kirsty Christie the entire time. Yeah, I was going to say something, and then I didn't. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so instead of destroying the mattress, Dr. Chenard kills several of his patients to resurrect and revitalize Julia, who kills Kyle, the assistant. Meanwhile, Kirsty has a vision of her father telling her that he's trapped in hell. Chenard and Julia kidnap one of his patients, Tiffany, uh, a mute girl obsessed with puzzles, and use her to open a portal to the world of the Cenobites. Inside, they see Leviathan which Julia describes as a god of flesh, hunger, and desire. And it's like a giant, like, rhombus thing in the sky. It's literally just a rhombus with emitting, like, a weird black light. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Julia tricks Chenard into being turned into a Cenobite by Leviathan. Searching for her father in the labyrinth, Kirsty realizes that it was actually Frank who was contacting her. And Julia shows up and kills Frank uh, in revenge for him killing her in the first film. But then Julia is sucked into a vortex that leaves only her skin behind. The other Cenobites show up, and Kirsty reminds them that they were once human, but is forced to flee with Tiffany when Chenard kills Pinhead and the others. Kirsty distracts Chenard by showing up in Julia's skin, and they are able to uh, kill him and escape the labyrinth. At the end, a group of movers are emptying out Chenard's house, and one of them is pulled into the blood-stained mattress from the first film. So yeah, you know, honestly, this movie, again, I'd never been able to finish it before. <laughs> it was not as bad as I anticipated, Yeah, but it's pretty bad. It's not, it's watchable. It's just like, I don't know, I, I describe it as like confusing and hard to follow, but the, and the visuals are, I don't know, they kind of go from like being surprisingly good to ridiculously bad. Uh Mainly I'm thinking of, like, the set dressing, the setting, the makeup, again, is really, really good. Um, but the actual special effects are terrible. Yeah, yeah. When I think it has this issue that... So the opening is really slow. That yeah. We get two different flashbacks, and then we end up having another flashback that recaps the entirety of the first film mm -hmm. when uh, Kirsty is trying to explain what happened, essentially. Right. So, I guess particularly if the original Hellraiser is fle uh, pretty fresh in your mind, I was going to say flesh in your mind. It's pretty flesh in your mind. Um, yeah, if it's if it's pretty flesh in your mind, yeah. then it is agonizing. Yeah. And it, it overall, I think, it's, it's about the same length, actually, as the original film, even with all that recapping. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think it feels, I mean, it, it came out literally a year after the first film and you can kind of feel that they're rushing yeah. almost that they almost, it almost feels like they didn't have a feature film. So they added a couple extra like unnecessary flashbacks <laughs> to like hit the like 90 minute mark. Yeah. Which is weird. Cause like they, they have like a lot of like important plot points that they kind of gloss over really quickly. Uh, and I missed a fair amount of them. Uh, so I w- I'm kind of confused as to like why they decided to have a clip show instead of just expounding on those plot points. Yeah, I, I think it, it just does feel kind of rushed. That right. I think there were some decisions made in the script that are like... Uh, so like when, when Kirsty kind of reminds the Cenobites that they were human mm-hmm. once, they just flip on a dime to being like, oh, I guess maybe we should help you. Right. It's kind of weird. Yeah, and it, it feels like, you know, theoretically that could be an arc that sort of unfolds gradually across the right. course of the film but instead it's more of like an ex machina of just being like okay we gotta we gotta solve the problem that we have right, right. now and so it feels very kind of chanky it feels extremely out of character because the Cenobites are like reveling in the fact that they're like these doms in this hell realm like I don't think they would want to become human again yeah yeah when I think the the hell realm itself so it looks like a giant kind of M.C. Escher painting. Yeah. You know, it's this this crazy labyrinth that uh, kind of works on, you know, non-Euclidean geometry. So you can kind of have passageways that go up and left and right and down all at the same time and whatever. But it's very sexless. Yeah. And very much devoid of temptation. Which I think, you know, it's so fundamental that the thing with the Cenobites is they're all about both pain and pleasure. Yeah. But all we get is is the pain side. And and so it just feels very... It's also, I mean, it's visually just a bunch of gray hallways. It is. It's literally the vast majority of the action of the film happens in just a bunch of hallways. Yeah, and, and so I, I think it ends up feeling... I guess it, it feels thematically lacking in that way. If this is, again, a film that's about desire and lust and um, the kind of craving for these extreme experiences, I don't. would anyone ever want to go to like a gray torture hallway? I mean, I would, but... No, okay, and would anyone but Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that like the, the fucking... What is it called? Leviathan? Is this... Who's like supposed to be kind of the creator of the Cenobites somehow. Or, somehow, yeah. Or like at least the the ruler of this like kinky S and M realm. The fact that he's literally just a rhombus like a sh- just he he's a shape. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't really uh scream uh master of pain pleasure realm. Right, right. Yeah, like Julia describes him as a god of flesh, hunger and desire. Yeah. But he's just a rhombus. <laughs> he's, lit- he's literally the cover image of a geometry textbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like, again, this might just come down to the the issue of VFX, you right. know? There's a lot of kind of putting the characters into, like, matte paintings and stuff right. to try and give us the sense of something bigger. But it feels like they blew their budget on certain things right. and really missed out on the overall like visual aesthetic of the film I mean I think coming back to Alien right, right. I think about how much of the imagery in Alien is you know phallic or kind of vaginal and how much the film is like drippy and fleshy mm-hmm. and, and organic and this is very like dusty and dry mm-hmm. and bare and 
rhombusoid. Rhombusoid geometric. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, uh, the, the rhombus, like, there isn't even, like, a rhombusy or anything, no. you know? I mean, there kind of is. When he turns into a cube, there's definitely a rhombusy in there. Oh, yeah, you're not wrong. You're yeah, not wrong. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of moments where we're like, are they gonna, like, fuck the cube? They're gonna fuck the cube. <laughs> I think they're gonna fuck the cube. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird, I think, there there are things that I think do really work. Yeah. Um, and, and so, like, I think the the kind of rejuvenation of mm-hmm. Julia happens largely off screen, yeah. which I think was a smart move, right? So it's not mimicking the the plot beats yeah. of the original film. Also, she kills a lot of people. Yeah, she does a take a lot. lot more people to rejuvenate than yeah. uh, than Frank did. Yeah. She needs a lot of people for those shoulder pads that don't show up in this movie. Yeah, there's a distinct <laughs> lack of shoulder pads. It's, it's a disappointing <laughs> zero out of ten movie. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So like she, um, she regenerates mostly off screen, which I think is a good decision. Mm-hmm. I think um, Kirsty going to hell essentially to try and save her father, mm-hmm. and then realizing that it's uh, Frank masquerading as him, right. is a really cool twist, right. and I I really like that. But it sort of feels like like those are the good ideas, mm-hmm. and they're kind of surrounded by <laughs> just a lot of bullshit. Pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I also think that uh, the new Cenobite, Dr. Chenard, the the whole shtick oh, yeah. is just that he's like a brain surgeon who's now also evil. Right. And every line he says is some kind of like a shtick on that. I hate that. I hate that so much. He said so many puns that were unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. And it... it I mean, I, I think, I guess, like, on some level, yeah, it's, like, a sort of supposed to be maybe, like, a fun, schlocky kind of horror sequel. Right. But it doesn't, it doesn't lean too far into the schlock, but right. it also doesn't have enough going on, I guess, as, like, an artistic film mm-hmm. to, to work that way super well either. He's also just kind of a boring character, both, like, before he transforms and even after he transforms. Like, he doesn't... Like, the only thing we get before he transforms is that he's very verbose, which was really fucking annoying, um, and that he's super into the occult and super horny for Julia, even when she's, like, in her meat suit, sort of, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, when well, both of these films have some weird kind of uh, erotic moments between, uh, you know, a normal person right. and somebody who's, like, half-regenerated right. and is mostly goopy flesh. Yeah, that would not... I don't think that would... Uh, I don't think that would turn most sane people on. It's it's a very next level horny to yeah. be like, I want you even if you're like half a person with no skin on your bones. It's like a half a step above necrophilia. Yeah, uh, it's pretty pretty close. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we don't really get a sense of kind of why he wants to go to the Cenobites realm. We don't have a sense of like what he's looking for. Right. You know, we know he's into the occult and that he's really into these puzzle boxes, right. but that's kind of it yeah it's kind of a really weak uh, reason for uh dr schnard to be like in there at all besides the fact that he's just a bad person who likes witchy shit yeah one thing i i, I will say that i really like is so there's a moment so right he's tricked by julia into mm-hmm. being turned into a cenobite and it's a pretty harrowing scene where he's like grabbed and has like a yeah. spinal thing shoved into his spine yeah. and cheese wire over his face yeah. and like uh, it's a pretty intense moment, and, and there's this hesitation where he's, like, kind of realizing, like, oh, my God, what is this world? And right. then, you know, goes through this hideous transformation. Yeah. 
And then when he comes back again, he says something like, I don't know why I hesitated. <laughs> and I love that, that we get this sense of like the, whatever kind of pleasure he's getting from this. But the movie is otherwise pretty... There's a really brief, like, threesome... Or we said we thought it was maybe, like, a two-and-a-half-some yeah. scene. I don't know what the heck the other person's doing. Yeah, it's, like, three people in a hot tub, and two of them are obviously banging down. Right. And then one of them just seems kind of awkwardly there. He's just sitting, just back to them. It's kind of like... It feels like, if you're familiar with Brigham Young University, like... <laughs> Oh, like no. two, two characters are soaking and the other one's doing like the there's a term for it but I forgot what it was he's like jumping on the bed so they can like fuck but like in a god honoring way oh god oh oh yeah yeah nobody google soaking just assume it's something you don't want to know I mean soaking would probably happen in the hell realm yeah you get so kinky that it goes all the way around <laughs> <laughs> It goes all the way around back to Heckraiser. Yeah. The kinkiest thing is Mormonism. Oh, baby. All right. Well, let's move into uh, pitching. Mm -hmm. What, What were your thoughts on how you would approach this sequel? So, I mean, I kind of liked... Where the sequel now is trying to go to, in that, like, it, it's exploring more of the Cenobites themselves, uh, like, where they live, kind of their realm, everything like that. I wanted them to go deeper into that. I kind of wanted, like, an origin story, because, like, you don't get a whole lot of that in, especially Hellraiser 1, you're just like, oh, these creepy goth kids are really horny and just want to like devour people's flesh or whatever uh and in uh hellraiser 2 you don't really get a whole ton uh more uh than you do in the first one so i just want to know like why what's their purpose like who who are they who was the first xenobite why are they the way that they are and who are they serving like leviathan like what is that like, is he supposed to be, like, a weird god? Is he Satan? Is he, like, the ultimate dom daddy? Why is he a rhombus? I have so many questions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Leviathan is one of the biggest sort of missed opportunities yeah. in this film. That, like, he should be the ultimate dom daddy. Right. And he's a shape. <laughs> yeah. So so then in that case, I'm thinking about how this would be like framed narratively. So then is is Kirsty going into hell and then kind of going on this journey of discovery of like finding out? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking of like, well, the film ends with uh, the box being taken by the spirit Halloween, like dragon skeleton, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then taken back to the uh, original merchant in Morocco. I was thinking that like if Christy was like trying or Kirsty fucking Kirstie Alley, whatever, was trying to... They should cast Kirstie Alley. That'd be amazing. Uh, was trying to, like, locate this, like, uh, fucking Rubik's Cube uh, to destroy it so the, that the, the uh, fucking Cenobites wouldn't be able to come back into the normal realm. Kind of getting into, like, some deep esoteric lore about, I don't know, the history of people with the, with this cube things like that uh, just gives us some like more I don't know information on everything 
Yeah, I, I think that could be really interesting. Kind of like a fucking uh, Indiana Jones sort of adventure. Oh. But horror and very sexual. Yeah. Yeah, well, so um, I went in almost the exact opposite direction. Love that. But I, I think they're actually, I mean, maybe this is just like a running theme that there's always like crossover if you're willing to like really smush our pitches together. There's a lot of smushing. There's a lot of smushing. Yeah. Um, actually, not a lot of smushing in the sequel, though. Not really, no. Like, for how horny the first film is, the second film really... There was no peen in the second film. There was very little of, like, anything super, uh... I don't know. We got to see mammary glands, like... Oh, not, by themselves. Not even, not even yeah. boob, like, mammary glands. Yeah, yeah, and that's locked into my mammary banks for life now. <laughs> See what I did there? You, uh... you can leave. <laughs> um, yeah, so for my pitch, I would extend the time between the films a little bit. So so Hellraiser 2 basically picks up like right where the first film left mm-hmm. off. So for me, I'm thinking a year or two after the events of the first film, there's been this investigation into the disappearances of Larry and Julia, and right, they found the bodies in the house, mm-hmm. but there really are no leads. Kirsty is recovering in a rehab clinic. Uh, and my sense is basically that, like, her extreme trauma in the first film, she kind of just, like, went off the rails afterwards. Right. After confiding the true events uh, that had happened in the first film to another recovering addict named Tiffany, Kirsty sees a vision of her father in hell, and they set out to save him. And so then my vision of the world of the Cenobites is this, like, it's just a world of extreme carnal pleasure and mm. pain. Like, it just is, like, an enormous BDM funhouse, bacchanalian insanity kind of place. So, like, an indoor Folsom Fair? Uh, I don't actually know what that means. You don't know what Folsom is? Oh, you're straight, that's why. <laughs> that's, there's your problem. <laughs> yeah, that's my problem. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's a outdoor, like, BDSM kink festival in San Francisco. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right, noted. Um, yeah, so so basically, uh, Kirsty and Tiffany go into this insane kind of enormous hellish pleasure house, uh, and Tiffany is tempted away, and you know somehow stolen or killed or you know something bad happens to her. Uh, Kirsty realizes that it was actually Frank sending her messages all along, and has to make a deal with Julia to survive and escape from hell together, and then they're you know, being hunted by the Cenobites and stuff as they try and find their way out. I I like it. I feel like, I don't know, it doesn't really... It's more of a continuation of, like, what's been happening as opposed to, like, an explanation, if that makes sense. Which I feel like is yeah. one approach to it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think maybe it comes down to, like, my personal kind of taste in horror right. that I, I really like that, that horror often deals with these things that are, like fundamentally beyond understanding right and so i kind of like leaving the cenobites as this thing that we we fundamentally won't understand i don't know i I feel like normally i'm like that but like with the cenobites i'm like i have a lot of questions about them that i Mm -hmm. feel like should be answered to like like an an extent (laughs) yeah even like what are they like what is their realm because i'm very confused as like whether the realm is literally hell or like if it's just some weird alternate universe or something. Right. Well, I mean, there's even a moment, I think it's in the first film, where 
I, I think it's Pinhead is explaining what the Cenobites are, and he right. says that you know we're angels to some and demons to others. Right. So yeah. So I mean, it, it, it. I think I think we're supposed to take it as not being like hell, or at least not like Christian hell or right. the traditional kind of image we have. Right. But then people, when they get killed by the Cenobites, go to that dimension, and they can be resummoned as like zombies in this dimension. But then in the Cenobite dimension, people can just get killed. It's very confusing how that works. Yeah, no, I, I think that's super fair. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, one of the biggest um, missed opportunities in the original film is dealing with sort of the... So the, the relationship between Julia and Frank, mm-hmm. you know, we see them having this kind of steamy, torrid affair, and then we see her kind of agreeing to do anything to bring him back. Right. And I I think that we're missing that sort of sick, addictive need for somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, that that I think they do a good job of showing us her hesitation the first time she has to kill, but after that point, she's just totally in and just is kind of the evil stepmother. Um, She turns into a girl boss, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that the, the, there's opportunities. So the, the 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 rehab clinic I think is interesting to me because I I think that like on some level drugs are this way that we like really hang on the like edge of like mm-hmm. danger you know extreme danger in search of pleasure and so it, that to me is sort of how I see her relationship to Frank is that to to her he is this kind of this drug that she hasn't mm-hmm. been able to kick over all of these years. And so, so to me, that's sort of what's what's interesting, potentially in like a sequel, is really exploring that like really uh, sick craving. That sort of like mm-hmm. I want to fuck you like an animal. Um, that that kind of craving, I think, is really interesting to me. I feel like they should have waited until like the mid '90s to make a sequel. Yeah, I mean, I think the next year was a pretty ballsy move yeah. for the kind of film they were trying to make. Yeah, it's it's kind of too soon, especially when there's a fucking clip show. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, and, and I think maybe there's there's some sort of a mid-zone of, you know, Kirsty goes into the Cenobite di- uh, dimension to mm-hmm. try and save her dad from hell, and maybe she just meets the ultimate dom-daddy while she's there, and that's sort of how we learn more about the Cenobites. I guess that would work. I don't know. I feel like there would be like a lot of a lot of explanation that I need that I wouldn't want in like a single scene or a single conversation. Yeah. Then it would be like tacked on almost. I want that to be like the movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really fair. And I'm sure out of the, you know, eleven movies <laughs> I'm sure there's there there's some explanation. <laughs> yeah, and I imagine there's just like a horribly gratuitous movie that that kind of is that. They need to make a Hellraiser where instead of Cenobites, they're Mennonites. Oh, baby. They take them to their dimension of um, purity and chastity. Hot. Yeah. So literally just like, I don't know, Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and there, there is, there's an interesting, like, there are these religious motifs I think again, particularly in, in the in the first film, there's, yeah, there's, like this, a, there's a surprise Jesus that just comes out of a closet. <laughs> yeah, there's a jump scare where like Kirstie is, I think, trying to hide, and she opens a closet, and Jesus like falls on top of her, yeah. or just like falls out and kind of bumps her. 
Um, and then two, I think it's two different times in the original film, a character references the uh, shortest verse in the Bible, yeah. just Jesus wept. I, I don't know what to do with that, honestly. Same. Like, I'm like, what are you trying to say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, it's really hard to place, like, what is that even about? Right. And Frank says that before he's like exploded by the Cenobite. He just looks at the camera and it's like, Jesus wept. And then he blows up. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, I guess potentially a different direction or some combination with all of this. It would be really interesting to think about how like religion kind of relates to the, the Cenobites or even just having like a deeply religious character, I think could actually be super interesting. What if instead of like this weird BDSM sort of dimension, they're in this weird BDSM sort of dimension, but it's like Catholic church themed. Ooh. Yeah, like there's stained glass and like, I don't know, other things. It could be like a culty, like sort of a black mass sort of deal as well. Which I mean is pretty much just Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's that's really interesting. I mean, um, I'm I'm thinking just about my pitch that like, what if it's like a uh, like a Catholic rehab or something? Because mm-hmm. um, there is, I mean, there's a whole world right of sort of like fetishizing elements of Catholicism, oh, like the like sexy nun. There's a whole lot. You. Yeah. Um, so so playing on that, I think, yeah. could be really interesting. And then you have very much that kind of um, like illicit pleasure, right. sort of. Or illicit desire, I guess. Yeah. There's no, like, Protestant fetishism, which, like, I've noticed. There is Catholic. Yeah, I think it's sort of, like, having a crush on, like, the worship leader when you're a teenager is sort of, like, the, like, evangelical equivalent. Where you're like, oh my god, he's, like, in a band and, like, plays instruments. Right. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's not the same iconography that you can, like, pull from to, you know. I mean, they, they, they try to not have iconography in general. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I don't know. I, Mennonites... How, how similar are Mennonites to the Amish? I genuinely don't know. Uh, Mennonites are just more liberal Amish. They're still, like, uh, by most Protestant standards, fairly conservative, but, like, women don't... Well, from what I know about Mennonites... They're allowed to use technology more often. Women don't have to cover their hair all the time. Things like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So a Mennonite congregation is pulled into the Cenobite dimension and have to get out using the power of chastity. I hate that. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, like, what I want from this film is... I want to see the ultimate Dom Daddy and, like, what, like, the world of the ultimate Dom Daddy is. That's same. I think almost, like, more than any, like, individual plot point, I just want to know, like, what are these pleasures that are so extreme? Right. I don't know. I feel like once you get to, like, I don't know if this is a term that, like, exists, but, like, a fetishism sort of, like, exhaustion or fetishistic exhaustion, I guess, Mm -hmm. or, like, when you get to, like, such an extreme of, like, sexuality and things, it kind of falls apart on itself. Or it yeah. becomes, like, so out there that it becomes almost a parody. Yeah, you, like, hit the point where it's like, I'm not able to get horny unless there's, like, somebody slapping a nun over right. a pit full of burning Rottweilers or something. Where you Pretty just get, like, the most... Yeah, when maybe that's the other side of it, too, is, like, the exhaustion with, like, earthly carnal pleasures and mm-hmm. the need for something so extreme that you're going like interdimensional to get your kicks kind of yeah i don't know it also feels like i feel like a good good um sort of 
Not juxtaposition, what is it called? When there's two things that are opposite of each other. Uh, uh, juxtaposition works for me. Oh, whatever. I feel like it would be a good like juxtaposition to have like this like intense desire for like earthly carnal pleasures set against this like more internal desire for like meaning things like that i feel like setting those two apart uh as like distinct opposites would make for like an interesting film what if there were xenobites but like for finding a purpose in life (laughs) what (laughs) i don't know what that even looks like like are they like your like college counselor yes it's it's just a group of psychiatrists so I'm just thinking about, like, the most extreme college-oriented direction planning <laughs> you can imagine. I think that would honestly just be, like, religious leaders. <laughs> we'll tear your resume apart. Return to the Telepodcast is a production of Silent Machine Studios, featuring music by My Silent Machine. If you enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, and do whatever else you usually do with podcasts, I don't know. Thank you for listening.